The following presentation features dramatic reenactments from unpaid robot actors. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like planning? Now, eagle-eyed members of the Tadampe family may notice that many episodes between seasons three and four will have been specially requested on our Discord server. If you haven't joined, a link can be found below, and it is essentially a space to continue the conversation and support each other while we wait for the next podcast to arrive. But back to business, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? Uh, in the last week or so, I've been reminded of a paper that I feel I've read before, um, but I possibly haven't. It's one by Daniel Willingham in Mind, Brain and Education. It's got a long title, but the bit that at the start is Mental Model of the Learner from 2017. It's a lovely little paper about the science of educational psychology, in particular, how you can share that with teachers, what teachers need to know in practice. The thing I love about it more than anything is just this one quote, which is that practitioners need a theory that would bore researchers. And so often when I've been thinking about what I want to share with teachers when I've been trying to do professional development, I've looked into research and I've looked into bits and pieces and I've come away thinking, yeah, actually, I don't want the controversial stuff. I want the stuff that there is something of a consensus on. I want the stuff that is pretty uncontroversial, the stuff that would indeed bore researchers. So I really like that. There's loads of other good stuff in there about epistemic assumptions. I'd highly recommend it. It's a quick read, but it's uh, really good. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I'm revisiting Daisy Christodoulou's Making Good Progress. So as part of uh my role as deputy head where I am we're kind of looking at uh, assessment again and how we can better tighten that up and so I remember reading this book possibly two to three years ago and I remember really enjoying it but finding it quite a struggle myself to understand the differences and kind of the nuances that she goes into so actually having had uh, another reason to go back to it um, rather than my own pure enjoyment I've taken far more from it this second time round than the first time round. just those real nuances between uh, formative and summative assessment and when you should use certain assessments for certain things and when not to use those things as well so it's been a real kind of eye-opener again just into assessment which is something you think is quite straightforward you ask them do they know or do they not but actually the nuances behind it are you know quite multifaceted so yeah it's been an interesting uh, trip down um, that avenue and something I'm looking forward to expanding on later on what about you Kieran what are you reading for they're both really strong post season three what you're reading for us you know Dizzy Christodoulou's making good progress could potentially be one of my favorite education books I remember reading and going wow this is you know this is on another level and then actually I think I've referred it to two different people this week particularly for the analogy about breaking things down into component parts and how, you know, footballers don't practice football matches all week. And, you know, and it just makes so much sense, you know, like you say, explaining really complex ideas. So I'm in the middle of reading a book that I will share, but I want to finish it before I do. And so I think I'm going to point everyone towards a podcast series that's really good in terms of historical subject knowledge. And it is the short history of podcast by Noiser Podcasts. So I've caught up on the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the plague, which is obviously a, bit, a big part of English history, and well, I suppose world history at that, at that time. And I think the next episode, Lloyd said, was going to be about the Maya. So some pretty topical episodes and, and really riveting the whole way through. So well worth, well worth spending time on. 
the focus of this episode is going to be planning. We'll try and look at it both generally and perhaps with some subject specifically as well. And I think the first thing we need to do, as always, is establish what do we mean by planning? It's quite a hard question to answer other than with a long list of things that all can be thought of as part of planning. I know that when I started teaching, the bulk of my time was spent thinking of activities for children to do. And this is not to say that activities is a bad thing to think about. Children will do activities that support their thinking and thus their learning, but it isn't necessarily the only thing in planning and it isn't necessarily the central thing in, plan in planning. It can be anything from thoughts over washing up about what you're going to teach the following day and how exactly you're going to explain a certain thing. It can be materials that you're putting together that you think, oh, I need to gather this stuff because this bit of equipment or this particular Venn diagram or whatever it is, this is going to support ch children's thinking and thus their learning. It can be the questions that you're going to ask. Um, as I've said, I'm I'm quite a fan of, I was about to say scripting. Scripting is far too highfalutin term for it, but mentally rehearsing explanations, getting key parts of definitions nice and tight and concise before I explain certain things. Effectively, it's anything that relates to the following three questions. It's like, what do you want children to be able to do or know at the end of this lesson? What do you want them to think about in order to achieve that? And how you exactly how you intending to make that thinking happen that's how i define it along with all the other bits and pieces i noted just thinking about uh our early career teacher friends certainly the way planning used to work was kind of you know there's three levels you have like this long-term planning as it were in which you would hope that the vast majority the, the school have done that thinking for you i think a good potential uh you know uh signal that perhaps the school isn't quite where it needs to be is if you go into there and they ask you to do some long-term plans for that year group because that should be something that's pretty set in stone you'd review it but that kind of just gives you your overview as to what you are going to you are expected to teach within each lesson for your um class but not a particular you know granular level it's just something how convoluted like you know, history maya maths, place value, addition, subtraction, etc. Then you'd have kind of have like your tier down, which is your medium term planning, which schools might ask you to do, but ideally you, um, you would have something to at least go on and perhaps review and refine it, where you might break those uh, components down to a little bit more detail, but not into this detail of, um, as Chris was saying, without that day to day, you know, what are the actual activities that I'm doing here? And then, as you say, then you'd have your daily lesson plan where you really kind of get to the crusp of how am I going to communicate this idea that I want to teach these children in the most, I think, efficient way possible. That means every student within uh, my class has a fair opportunity of grasping that specific idea. And again, as Chris kind of alluded to, my main kind of thought process when I first started out in my career was, uh, here's a great activity. How can I work this backwards to find some relevant learning objective, whatever it might be, because I really like the idea of children going around with Pac-Man with a 90 degree angle cut going around the classroom and seeing what Pac-Man can eat. I remember just absolutely loving the idea of that activity so it's like yeah we'll find something that vaguely goes with that not coherent at all you know the lesson before probably wasn't on angles it was probably on addition or some subtraction whatever it might be but you know it's a fun little activity let's throw that in and again through cognitive science and research like that I've kind of come to frame my planning now not as to what I'm doing or even what the kids are doing but rather you know at each specific point what am I going to get the children to think about and how am I going to elicit that thinking that I can be responsive then to that thinking and take my lesson in whatever direction it needs to go in based on those responses sorry I was just going to say it's a shame that you were on mute during that because I wanted you were laughing along to something Neil said and I think that's always <laughs> nice to have that in the background yeah, I think it's always nice yeah I like the idea of people laughing at the idea of 
man going around and eating 90, only 90 degree angle objects in a classroom. True story, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about, you know, that's, that's idea 101. Give that to Shannon. <laughs> yeah. Just one other thing to add, I think that I didn't mention is quite obvious, perhaps, but wasn't obvious to me at the start of my career, which is that a big part of planning is learning about your subject knowing in detail the thing you're going to help the children to learn is as much a part of planning as actually thinking about how they're going to learn it the two go hand in hand just thought i'd mention that i'm sure it's going to come up again later but worth noting i really like that both of you have sort of drawn attention to thinking you know and it definitely came up a few times at some of the sessions i was at at the research aid national conference and certainly morgues he mentioned it quite a bit when he was talking about task design. You know, it's it's realigning our focus on tasks that make people think and what they on what they think about. So that that really resonates. You know, I think everyone has got a story, at least one of the activities. You know, I'm thinking about my early career, and when when you have a mentor, you initially start off you want to replicate what your mentor is doing, but you're you're only seeing the task because you don't have the the understanding of why they've made the decisions they've made you know so it's very very easy to do i think the only thing i would add is that i think it might be the most important thing that we do more so than the actual delivery because you know and we're, we're not necessarily ones for aphorisms but if you fail to prepare then you should prepare to fail i think you know because i've not seen a really effective lesson that wasn't carefully thought through, you know, even down to the level of having done the problems, you know, I'm, I'm talking about maths in advance so that you know where pupils may come awry, so to speak. So I think it can't be understated how important careful thought about what we want to happen in the classroom really is for, for our efficacy and our proficiency. I guess the next thing then that we should dig into is what exactly makes high quality planning? What makes planning that is effective and is going to lead to good lessons? Yeah, so I think we can tease out a few things of what we mean by planning um, from that previous answer, what we mean by planning into what, you know, certainly for me, key planning it is. And again, it's definitely writing down some key questions that you want to ask that are really going to elicit what those children are thinking about so that you can then be responsive to that and you know you could go one step further and even you know preempt the specific children when when you get to know your class those particular questions that you want to plan and also consider what their possible answers might be given the that you would know those children to then really kind of think about well if they say this what am I then going to say you know as a retort to what their answer is based on what I think they're going to say I think it's one of the um Douglamov techniques like you reward a correct answer with another question and I think that's quite a powerful one that you can definitely use I think really thinking about those key misconceptions and really kind of hitting those misconceptions head on can be quite a powerful way of um, addressing them actually. Although it might seem counterintuitive that you're saying, you know, ah, this is you know, wrong, don't learn from this. Actually, it can really be quite powerful in being like, oh yeah, well, I did, well, I did think that, but you've just made that, the teachers then just made all that thought process far more clear and far more succinct. And hopefully, you know, we know that misconceptions never truly actually die and it's just you know we need to relay those neural pathways to make sure they actually uh, get through that misconception and find that right answer and then from there just kind of really thinking then what do I want them to learn in this lesson and that is something that is quite difficult to do because you get so um, caught up in the what are they doing that there's normally the, a disconnection between what they're actually doing in that lesson versus what they're actually learning in that lesson and so those who've listened to the podcast before i'm sure you've heard us talk about those differences between 
performance um, and learning. And so I think for my kind of final part is that good lesson planning doesn't assume that learning happens. And so therefore you need to think about where can I go back in lessons that come later on where I can go back to what I've previously taught to actually see if that lesson was effective. I think at this point, you know, even, even though Elliot was too busy going to the cinema to be here, uh, he has sent through his, his ideas and what he thinks are the, the key elements of group planning. And to be honest, when I heard him talk about this at the, at the national conference, I was nodding along, you know, quite a bit. And I think they'd match up, you know, because he, he was referencing Wiggins and I think it's Mc, McTighe, T-I-G-H-E, in 2005. We'll put a link underneath this episode. But he was talking about planning backwards. And I'm surprised you didn't say this, Neil, because when I wrote the chapter for <laughs> thinking deeply about primary mathematics, I was thinking about you and, and, and the stuff you did for Greenwich University, you know, and starting with that desired result in mind and then determining what you think is acceptable evidence and then planning the learning experience, you know, almost backwards, so to speak. You know, and he says, when we plan forwards, you know, certainly in primary, we often get confused learning objectives, you know, which confuse the actual learning objective with the context in which the objective has been taught, which sort of speaks to what you're sort of saying, Neil, you know, and he gives the example of an LO, um, you know, for how to write instructions with the context of how to make a sandwich becomes how to write instructions for making a sandwich. Good planning clarifies that the learning objective it clarifies it for the teacher and then therefore the learning, you know, and it, it considers the learner's perspective and that takes precedence. You know, I think you've said this as well. Content is irrelevant if it's not presented in a manner that the learner can comprehend. And I think when I'm thinking about planning, I'm certainly thinking about where we want to go to and then working backwards and in, in terms of those component parts. We talked about the component parts Daisy Chris was talking about. It's that goal state. You know, we know where we are now. You know, normally we are with pupils who are to some extent unaware of that which we sort of wish them to learn about. And we need to get them there. And I think, you know, what does that journey look like? You know, I think I use the term roadmap and, and then sort of planning backwards. It's sort of, you know, a really a key element because like Elliot says, you reduce the opportunity for confusion because we've, we've all seen learning objectives or learning intentions whatever you want to call them that have little relevance or bearing on a what's happening and b what they're supposed to be learning um, and so anything we can do to reduce the opportunities for that confusion i think is is a key element because that way you mentioned you're trying to be efficient in disseminating this knowledge to as many pupils, you know, 30 odd pupils at a time. That's a very confusing landscape. So anything we can do to reduce the noise and then really focus our pupils' attention is, um, you know, is, is key for me. Lots of good stuff there, leaving me with only a few things to talk about, which is probably for the best. I've already mentioned it, but I'm going to restate it because of how important I think it is. If I only had an hour to teach, sorry, to plan, I should say, um, a lesson on something that I was unfamiliar with, that I wasn't sure that I understood, just an hour, I would probably spend 50 minutes learning about that thing and then 10 minutes preparing the, the, the I was about to say the lesson, but again, this is something we might come on to later about whether we're thinking about lessons or a chunk of learning, whatever, whatever chunk of learning we might be talking about. If I didn't know the thing, the majority of my time would be spent learning about that thing. I've seen far too many and have no doubt taught far too many lessons which have not gone particularly well, not because I hadn't really tried to think through all of the aspects that you gentlemen have already discussed, but because I or the teacher in question just didn't quite understand the thing itself. Neil talked about misconceptions, quite possible for teachers to hold those misconceptions as well. And we have to really know our subject the subject itself and the pedagogical content knowledge that goes with it before we can you know teach it to a high standard 
couple of things that we mentioned earlier on that didn't come up, I don't think again. So obviously I'm a big fan of the idea of mental rehearsal of particular aspects of explanations, particularly how the explanations end. Um, a bit like a low-grade standard comedian who knows the punchline and then just finds a way to make it there. I really liked what you were saying, Kieran, in particular about the idea of chunks, chunks of knowledge, manageable steps, effectively. It's a chance for me to plug something that I absolutely love. There is a website for those interested in mathematics, teaching and planning called structuringinquiry.com. They describe these chunks of learning in a really interesting way they call them critical discernments um, I'm I'm fairly sure they haven't come up with the phrase but it's where I first came across it and it is a really interesting way of looking at the way that any complicated concept can be broken down before being weaved back together so I'd highly recommend people check that out I feel like I've taken stuff from it that doesn't directly relate to maths teaching as well so it's yeah highly recommend that but yeah you guys have hit the nail on the head I think I saw the other day, um, it was on Twitter, and someone had asked about what the, the big ideas are in mathematics. And I think Mark McCord said that he tends not to think in terms of lists of ideas, but in terms of didactics. And, you know, I think I've got a long way to go in terms of understanding, you know, certainly tried to engage with uh, Freudenthal, but I, need, I know I need to read more about it. But um, I was also having a conversation in the same week about why we would use the area model to explore division or multiplication and from that conversation about why you know why can't we just teach the method well here are all the connections that this this representation allows us to make across the curriculum and i think going to your point about knowing what it is we're going to teach without that knowledge as the teacher we can't make those connections ourselves and then I think by default, our pupils can't make those connections, you know, because, you know, and I think that's what we're thinking about when we're thinking about didactics is, is, is those connections between modes of instruction, representations, I hope, you know, I may come back in a year or two's time when I've read a bit more, and I'll realize that I was completely wrong. But at that moment, that seemed to align. And, and you've just reminded me about there, Chris, because, yeah, I think without ourselves being in possession of an understanding of the domain that we wish to pass on you know we're we're fighting a losing battle i think i think that's such a good example because for years i taught grid method and related it to an extent to an area model of multiplication without knowing or really grasping the particular field axiom that it that it's most valuable for demonstrating the uh, the whole distributivity of multiplication over addition and it's only when you kind of grasp that and see how basic that can be at its at its core and how valuable it can be you know the more you learn about it that you see why showing multiplication first as arrays and then linked to that an area model of multiplication is so valuable so yeah i think that's a really good example because you you you, you need to know that stuff if you're going to plan it and teach it to a high level so yeah love that example kieran there is a great sense of irony i promise listeners if this makes the cut we didn't do this on purpose but i'm actually having to teach the grid method tomorrow <laughs> so uh, and all these ideas are exactly what is going through um you know my head and going through you know why do because i've we tried it today and the kids are just like oh but we know how to do column multiplication like why are you getting us to do this and I just know when it comes to basic algebra and the idea of just finishing the you know building the rectangle when it comes to looking at division and so the inverse of it so actually looking at you know right so we know what the area is but what's the length of each side all of that kind of stuff is going to just going to come back so beautifully hopefully for these kids so they'll be like okay so this is why we've done it yes we know that column method can be a far more efficient way to do it but that grappling with the mathematics of the grid method um, is far more beneficial. The issue is though, is that they just don't see that yet. And so, yeah, it's still a battle to get 10, 11 year olds to do a method where they think, oh, why do I need to do this? Anyway, we digress. But I think perhaps that a good little segue then into perhaps the third 
question, which is perhaps the advantages and disadvantages of thinking about planning on a lesson by lesson basis. Is, is that the generation of planning? You know, let's say sitting down on Monday and planning out Monday to Friday's or Tuesday to Friday's lessons. Is that is that what we're talking about on a lesson by lesson basis from scratch? Could be. Um, the reason I popped it in there was because I'm aware that there are certain realities that teachers face. So, for example, if we think about Matt's um, mastery model and the, the the fact that that has a um, what's the word I'm looking for? It has that catch up that daily, not catch up, keep up, has those keep up sessions. In order for that to work, the teacher effectively has to go, this is where we get to today and we go no further. And this is kind of our plan. You know, this is the thing I'm teaching today. And if we succeed, we succeed. And if we don't, we don't, but this is it. There isn't room for necessarily the teacher to go, oh, well, 95% of my class smashed this in 20 minutes. Let's move on. And I'll think about how to support that 5% with it another time. There isn't that that particular form of flexibility. There is other brilliant forms of flexibility built in, no doubt. But I was just thinking about that particular idea. I wasn't going to talk about that specifically, but just the idea that there are certain things you can and can't do when you go, this is what I want to achieve on Monday. This is what I want to achieve on Tuesday. This is what I want to achieve on Wednesday. Same with like, you know, if you're planning history, you know, you've got, you've got so much to teach over a certain amount of time but if you're planning it and three other teachers are going to be using it as well, you effectively want to say to them, this is lesson one, this is lesson two, this is lesson three, and anything beyond that becomes quite impractical. I'm not very good at sticking to the time. You know, if if a sequence is given, you know, this will take 14 days, it probably take me closer to 20 because I like to slow things right down to make sure pupils really understand. I, I do think that I get gains later on because when we spiral back, they understand more deeply that which we, we've, we've initially covered. So I think, like we said about planning backwards, we need to know where we're going to. But I think the more flexibility we can provide ourselves with within a given sequence, the better. Because one of the things I say to my teachers, okay, here are the, the six questions we're going to use in our in the main body of our lesson today. Where are they going to get stuck? Why are they going to get stuck? And can I design questions which also focus attention on that particular feature or that particular structure? So for instance, if you were taking these example, formal and um, formal algorithm, learn to multiply. And once the introduction of two digits, instead of, you know, having one multiplier, then I think, you know, you think, okay, well, I know the pupils often have, a tr have trouble with place value here. So how can I draw out that place value and have a post-it note with six questions on it that have the exact same sticking point. And then that becomes the focus for the next lesson or that becomes the focus for the rest of that lesson. And then we pick up where we left off. So I think having a broad outline, for me, it's a high quality textbook. And within that textbook, you know, you've got, you know, parameters and, you know, you can stick them or not. Like, like I say, I'm not very good at it. Knowing the skeleton and then your interaction with the pupils feeding your decision-making, I think is key. So for me, you know, I've always, I've heard things like don't, pl don't plan past day three because you don't know what's going to happen, you know, in, in the first session, you know, so you've got that breathing space. But I also think that um, what we should do is we should know the journey and then we can improvise, you know, like I said in our talk at Mass Conference, that improvisation, do I want to go on further than this or do I want to go deeper? And normally the answer is deeper because there is, there's a lot more to mathematics than the initial surface that we get, that we get the national curriculum. A bit of a confession I think that the by far the best teaching I've ever done, and this is going to sound incredibly impractical to school leaders, so I apologize if you know this gives some of your teachers the wrong idea, but the best teaching I've ever done was when I worked in a circumstance where I was able to plan at the end of every day for a significant chunk of time um, because I wasn't running an after-school club, I was running a lunchtime club because I was working four days a week and the day I 
effectively the staff meeting fell on a day so that I didn't need to worry about the next day for that one. And effectively what it meant I could do was that at least for all my core subjects, I could have an idea of where I was going in my head um, across the span of lessons. And then every day I could just go, well, where, where, were we, where did we get up to? What am I doing tomorrow? Best teaching I've ever done. I'm not saying that I'd advocate it for everyone. I think it's a very difficult structure to roll out across a whole school. I'm not, it might not be particularly supportive to early careers teachers and this sort of thing. But I think it does point somewhat to the idea that being flexible is incredibly important. And obviously, if you plan, this is Monday's lesson, this is Tuesday's lesson, this is Wednesday, this is Thursday, this is Friday, you are sacrificing some of that flexibility and not only that arguably you might waste some time because you could get three quarters of the way through a lesson feel like children had grasped something that you weren't expecting them to grasp so quickly perhaps miraculously all of them can tell the time on an analog clock and you've set aside a day for it and actually they can all do it 15 minutes into the lesson and you think well what do I do next? If you've planned Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you are keen to stick to that rigidly, then that's 45 minutes that yes, you can use productively, maybe for some little and often teaching or some of the component of mathematics you want to return to, which is great. But compared to say, just going, well, let's crack on with the next bit of learning then, shall we? It might waste a bit of time. Obviously, it's also worth noting that learning doesn't happen in 60 minute chunks necessarily. And you can plan it out and think, yeah, this is going to take 60 minutes. Lovely. Or 55 minutes. So I've got a little bit of wiggle room. But children will surprise you. In my experience, they will get things quicker or get things a lot slower than you were expecting them to as a class. So, yeah, it's um, that's some of the disadvantages. I think it's only fair to possibly mention some of the practicalities involved with it and why a teacher might say, this is Monday, this is Tuesday, this is Wednesday. Or if they're planning a foundation subject, why they go, this is my half term of science. I've got it planned. The first of those is that if you know what you're doing on a given day, you know what the, the key point you want to get across, you can put in structures like daily keep up sessions that you know are going to relate to that thing. Arguably, uh, having a lesson by lesson structure makes it easier to to bring little and often teaching into what you're doing because you can set aside 10-15 minutes at the start of every lesson or however long it may be and know that the rest of that chunk of time is what you want to dedicate to a particular learning point um, though obviously it's still possible to do little and often teaching while being flexible and as I say I mentioned foundation subjects it allows for advanced planning I, I don't know whether the teachers listening are anything like me but I was someone who would need to plan a half term's worth of science or a half term's worth of history during the half term or during the Easter holidays or whatever it might be. And I needed to do that because I knew term time I'd be swamped. So this meant that I effectively had to go, here are six lessons worth of content. Here's what I want to do. And this is how I'm going to break it up. Now you might argue that, well, you still don't need to break that into lessons as such. You could still let that bleed across lessons, but it's often the case that you're then sharing that planning with someone else. And yes, they're going to pick it up and make it their own. But at the same time, if you're saying to them, here's this long thing, rather than here's Monday of week one, here's Monday of week two, et cetera, it can be more difficult for other people to pick up. So I think there are some, uh, practicalities involved, but I must admit that my ideal, if it's ever achievable, is still to go, this is my long-term goal, and at the end of every day, I'm going to plan and get the next lesson ready. That's my that's the best teaching I've done when I've done it that way, if I'm blunt. Yeah, that's certainly the kind of model that I've fallen into right now as I kind of adapt to the work life of, as a classroom teacher and a deputy head as well. It's kind of but I think, and I wonder whether we mean when we say plan. So I'll probably plan. I'll plan a, a week. But when I say plan, I'll have a rough idea of the learning object of the learning that I want to get across the week. But I'll only fully plan and fully resource perhaps up to Wednesday where possible. So I kind of don't necessarily then waste the time doing Thursdays and Fridays. And if everything goes to pot, kind of in that first part of the week. So 
that's certainly something that I kind of make sure that I do is that I'll have a rough idea of what I want for the week, but that might only be science on Friday. I'm looking at adaption, uh, adaption of plants. So I know what, I know that's where I want to be, but I haven't made my PowerPoints. I haven't thought of a particular question yeah, I haven't really thought of a suitable task yet, but I know that's where I want to be. I'll get to that point on Thursday, hopefully tomorrow. So I'm not exactly going back on Thursday evening going, ah, no, what am I going to do next? Where do I get this from? I have this idea of what I'm going to do. I do like the idea of a learning episode. And certainly when you're in one form entry schools, as I now kind of find myself in, and you don't have another person or two to three people kind of relying on your planning to kind of get them through I think it does give you that little bit more flexibility that you can just say right I know that this isn't going to take an hour and it is perfectly acceptable that it is the same learning objective that goes across two lessons because children especially you know given COVID and everything you know I'm doing the grid method tomorrow. I know that half the lesson will probably just be spent on teaching the children, you know, how to plan out a grid so that it actually looks presentable in their books and not a complete mess. So I, I'm fully on board with the idea that this is probably, I'm going to probably take an hour just to make sure that their grids are used with a ruler and a pencil. And, you know, they actually think about the fact that, right, well, I'm going to have to partition 300 and 52 into 350 and two and so mentally you know plan out what that looks like which I think there's probably some good spatial reasoning mathematics in there and it's probably worthwhile a worthwhile activity in of itself to actually think of those things but not having to or having not having another person relying on planning means that you know you can spend that time doing that and someone doesn't come to you on the day of the the lesson why are we just spending a whole day teaching kids how to you know think out and draw a grid just a little point i want to add on to what you said there when you were talking about something running over from one lesson into another i remember quite near the start of my career the first time that that happened where i taught something it was going to go into the following lesson and i remember i was about to get children to write the date and the learning objective again because well, it's a new day and it's got to fit with a book scrutiny. And when I said, you know what, kids, don't bother, leave it. I've, I was strutting around the classroom like I was James Dean, thinking <laughs> I'm a real rebel. I do my own thing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It just reminded me of it. These little kind of pathetic scraps of autonomy that you slowly piece together over the years as you become a little bit more professional. Yeah, that was probably one of my first scraps. You, you yeah, probably okay. gained 12 minutes that day as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole every new day, a new learning objective thing was a funny time. On, on your adoption, Neil, are you going to the phenotypic level? How, you know, is, is the phenotype still an acceptable <laughs> way of interpreting? You're the scientist, Chris. Well, I'm, I'm personally, I know it's a perfectly valid word, but I will never accept the word adaption. Never. It's adaptation or nothing. It's perfectly valid. And it kind of makes more sense because we're talking about adapting. But adaption, it just still... I can't imagine it coming out of David Attenborough's e uh, mouth. I definitely can't <laughs> imagine it coming out of his ears. Can't Can I imagine say, this it coming is, out this of his mouth. So I'm not having it. Listen to you guys. You're making a really, really sound argument for collecting this, these journeys in some sort of booklet. And I know they've been discussed quite a bit online at the moment, but the things that you're talking about, having that, having that view, being able to act on the view, it sounds like if we had something for science that mapped out where we're going to, then we could dedicate our attention, you know, just like we do with our maths textbooks, we can dedicate our attention to the, to the things that we see in the moment and move away from these hour-long chunks for lessons. I don't know, do you agree? Because in my mind, you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, that sounds exactly like why we'd use a high-quality textbook. That sounds like why people are talking about using booklets. You know, I'm trying to think of the people I've seen recently talk about it. I know Danny Quinn did a bit in a previous MathConf online, but during John Blake's session at the National Conference, I think Jack Harker texted me because he said that 
of the 30 minutes that a teacher will spend planning, 21 minutes are dedicated to resource finding online. And if we want to do those things that you guys are talking about, we don't have 21 minutes per every subject. Because if you extrapolate that out, that's a whole lot of time that we don't have. I think there's definitely an argument for curated resources, certainly. I used, I won't even say high quality textbooks, just textbooks that had sets of questions that I could pick from and just say, I'm going to use that set of questions. That works nicely with what I've been talking about today. I'm going to chuck in a couple at the end because I want to address particular misconceptions that they've left out, etc. But it's something that I definitely considered. I think often the argument about planning gets trapped in an area that we've, to some extent, we've been engaged in this evening, which is talking about the ideal world. And I don't doubt for a second that the ideal lesson plan is entirely created, resourced, thought through by the class teacher who's going to deliver it. In reality, in a lot of cases, particularly with foundation subjects, when teachers come to teach the Mayans and they've effectively got a couple of hours to plan it and they know nothing about it, I often think it's the case that with a set of quite basic lesson plans, a set of resources, a set of texts that they might use, that that frees up time within those two hours to say, okay, I'm going to learn more about the Mayans so I can make this pop, I can make it sing. We listen, I listened to the podcast with John Hutchison the other day, and he, I think, is quite convincing on the subject. And I think he's right to point out that there are potential downsides if they're done badly, etc. But I think for certain subjects and in certain circumstances, I think there is definitely an argument for a curated set of resources, particularly, dare I say, if you're a new teacher, I learned to plan from looking at other people's planning bluntly. It wasn't just me working out stuff for myself, but in terms of how to make it accessible for myself, for me in the lesson, what I actually needed to write down compared to what I just needed to think through, but probably didn't need to be written down. That was partly facilitated at least by looking at other people's lesson planning. Worst case scenario with a set of resources and a set of lesson plans is that someone turns up and goes, you know what, I know this subject inside out. I love this. There's no need for me. I don't need this stuff. And they ignore it. Good, wonderful. But that's fairly rare, particularly dare I say with um, regards to foundation subjects. I am, by the way, increasingly convinced of your side of the argument when it comes to high quality maths textbooks, Kira. And I don't think there's any, um, I need to make a secret of that. I think the key thing, though, is the idea of having, I think you've already alluded to it, this idea that a good quality resources, a structure, a potential plan effectively that you can adapt and change as you see fit, frees teachers potentially to think more about the subject at hand. And it also means we can start to expect more of our teachers when it comes to knowing the subject. I've seen teachers teach the Mayans, for example, and they've obviously don't really know the subject well at all. And I don't feel in any way that I can say, well, did you not take the time to look into this a bit more, to learn a bit more about it? Because I know that they're working 50 hours a week or 55 hours a week. And I know that when they came to plan the Mayans, most of that time was spent resourcing. So we can begin to perhaps expect a little more of our teachers in terms of their subject knowledge, not just in foundation subjects, but across the board if we're able to give them a bit more time. So I, th I think there is an argument for more structure and more support for teachers, personally. Yeah, you're not going to get uh, the great debate on this episode. I, um, yeah, for all the reasons that Chris has said, I just think when you ask, when you just think of it in kind of abstract terms of that each year, you will be teaching a different area of history, off you go. Like, it doesn't make any sense that in one year you've planned and resourced something on the Vikings and then the next year it may be the case that you then have to do you know the local history study say in from the national curriculum I'd love to have a look actually at what 
some people do for that. It, you you normally the the go to is oh yeah we'll just throw a bit of World War Two in there that affected everything so we'll put that as a, the local history study. But I absolutely agree that there should be some sort of and it should be you know the minimum it's the safety net. I think is the analogy that I'd probably like to use. It's just a safety net there that and like Chris, I've listened to John John's uh, episode if you know the teacher had life or there was a reason outside of work that a teacher couldn't necessarily plan fulfill the lesson you know to the best of their ability at least there is that safety net that minimum threshold where you know there is a far more of a chance that those students are going to get something from that lesson if they're just going to you know read a little bit discuss a little bit read a little bit discuss a little bit answer some questions, who agrees, who disagrees with that statement, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, obviously we want more than that. But as I say, it just provides that safety net. And, you know, for a supply teacher, they must love that. <laughs> and you'd want that as well. I mean, how many, you know, if we're realistic, you know, how many times do we set work for a supply teacher only to be like, yeah, do you know what? I'm probably going to do that again because it's not the way I wanted it to be done, which is no disrespect to supply teachers. You do all do a, a wonderful, fantastic job and we thank you for it. But you know, every teacher has their own kind of nuances and how they want certain bits to be done. And, you know, it'd be not impossible for, I think, anyone to go in and teach a lesson that is exactly how the teacher imagined it to be. So, yeah, high quality textbooks, booklets, whatever, all for it. But don't force it on the profession because that's just one way that it would die a death very quickly. I think have them available, absolutely. If it's a way that your school wants to go, fine. But if there were, you know, if the new education secretary all of a sudden decides booklets for everyone has to be done that way, I would rally against that. When I first came across mathematics textbook, something that was that guided you through the learning journey, I had the flexibility to use it or not as I saw fit. And I'm not going to name the brand because it wasn't particularly great. But every third lesson or so, I'd come across an, a, a part within there or a set of questions or a way of explaining something. I go, oh, blooming hell. That's good. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That is clever. And it changed my practice. There is a professional development aspect to this sort of thing. But again, important to know, I'd been teaching for quite a long time. And so I felt able to use it every third lesson or whatever it turned out to be, rather than go, okay, this is the straitjacket that I that is wrapped around me. I'm sure with something really high quality or something that aligned a little bit more with what I thought high quality maths teaching would be, I might have used it significantly more often. But even with something that I didn't really agree with, didn't really align with what I thought about teaching, I still got value from it. It still supported me. And I think that's um, easy to forget at points. That ties in really nicely with the next question. To what extent is it possible to use or adapt another person's plan? I have nothing to add to this, except for the fact that I can't do it, or certainly couldn't do it, because at the start, I was either really bad at delivering what someone else has intended, or now, I think I know so much that I'll do something completely different anyway. So I am not the person to answer this question. But, uh, you know, is it is it possible? Depends what we mean by planning. If by planning, we mean the sort of things we've been describing, set of resources, an outline of a structure, a set of explanations that link together, I think it's perfectly possible and can be really beneficial. And as I've said before, in terms of professional development, it can as well. But if we are meaning someone's lots of typing in their lesson, they've got first five minutes, do this, next 10 minutes, do that. Yeah, I think that's a, um, a really difficult thing to pick up. I think generally speaking, though, I find it, like you do, relatively uh, a relatively painful process to teach from someone else's kind of written plans if I don't, if I know the subject quite well. And if I don't know the subject particularly well at all, I'm really relieved to come across someone else's plan. That's kind of my way of looking at looking at it, which again, ties into what we've said already about the idea of being able to take it and leave it when it comes to a set of plans or a set of resources. The essential thing is being able to take from it what you will, rather than 
having to go through it in those exact steps regardless. Yeah, I've always been terrible at it. And it depends, you know, whose planning it is, where they are in their career. You know, we all have our mental models. If it's a lesson that, you know, if it's a year six or year five lesson, I have my own mental models from my own experiences of what I think should do then. And what probably happens is that my habits then just kind of kick in. And so I go off that plan. Whereas if it was something more you know, key stage one, or heaven forbid, you know, um, reception, I would probably be, you know, holding that plan in my hand and just, you know, checking it, checking it, checking it all the time while still, you know, doing what, you know, extensively what I think might be right. But I'd probably do my best to maintain fidelity to that plan if it's a year group that I'm not familiar with or, as Chris said, you know, a subject area that I'm not too sure about. But I think that doesn't negate the fact that some having that plan is still, you know, pretty useful as a starting point because either for me then as a novice in that situation it's really useful as an expert it tells me where these students are in their learning and you know I can use then my expertise and my mental models to really kind of navigate around that as you're speaking I'm thinking okay well maybe it sounds pretty contradictory and then I'm saying high quality textbooks booklets are good but I can't plan from other people's planning I think the role that the pedagogical model and the sequencing and the place in the sequence are, are probably the key things that would make a distinction between, for instance, if I give a plan that I've made to someone else and said, okay, teach this lesson for me, or having something that was part of a much bigger picture. You know, and we may need another episode to un unpick this contradiction, but I think there are you know, those key features that distinguish between high quality and low quality, the guaranteed presence of those features, you know, because you both mentioned John's episode, there will no doubt have been a lot of thought into how the information is presented, how the information has been sequenced, and everything in between. And so, yeah, I think, I think, Maybe let's park that, but I'm going to acknowledge publicly that there, it may sound like a contradiction, but I think it's certain features that allow me to make that distinction between, say, for instance, plants I've knocked up in 20 minutes or something that has been tried and tested over an extended period of time. I think that apparent contradiction, you're right, gets to the very heart of what we're discussing here. We want to know where we are in a sequence. We want to see how it all fits together and a set of resources that's been thought through in detail can supply that but it's when we get into these this minutiae these kind of little bits of structure that force teachers to do certain things in a certain way where the problems lie and I guess anyone who is thinking about providing more structure for their teachers providing resources basic planning etc needs to bear both of those sides of that contradiction as you described it in mind if they're going to get the best out of them. I think all that's left to say is thank you very much, Neil and Chris, for joining me. Thank you. Cheers. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.